Discussing the commodities markets, what's happening and why. We talk to the experts, the traders, the investors, and the companies they're investing in. You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisbee. Hello and welcome to Commodity Watch Radio. I'm Dominic Frisbee and in today's programme our experts look at 2009 and tell us what's going to happen. James Turk, David Morgan, John Rubino and Bob Hoy all give us their thoughts. A reminder that Commodity Watch Radio programmes are not put up on a regular basis, so the best way to get them as soon as they come out is to subscribe to the show via the subscribe with iTunes button, and then programmes will be sent to your iTunes folder or your iPhone as soon as they're uploaded. And a reminder that nothing you hear in this programme is intended as advice, it's just an expression of opinion only. Enjoy the show. James Turk is the founder and chairman of Gold Money, which you can find at goldmoney.com. And I'm talking to him now. He's in New Hampshire. Happy New Year, James. Happy New Year to you, Dominic. What's going to happen in this in this Happy New Year? Well, I think it's going to be a good one for people who own gold and silver. Um, much like uh, 2008, um, uh, you know, it was a good year for gold in 2008, and it was a good year for silver, depending on which currency you measured it. The problems that we've seen in 2008 are not over by any by any means. Uh, we've got more problems in the year ahead, and uh, as a consequence, I think the nervousness that we're seeing in the financial markets can be expected to continue. Do you have um, kind of using kind of crude technical an- analysis? Do you have any kind of price targets for gold and silver? Yeah, in dollar terms, um, I'm. I think we're going to go into four digits in the first quarter of 2009, and I expect this time we're going to go into four digits and stay there. Um, you know, if we have more banking problems, then I think we will. Uh, you're going to see more monetary turmoil, and I think you have an upside potential of $1,800 uh, on the gold price uh, uh, in 2009. And the way I, I look at silver is, you know, I first look at gold and then, figure out the gold-silver ratio. Um, the gold-silver ratio has been trading in a range from 80 to 40. I don't think it's going to go above 80. And, in fact, I think it's more likely to fall to the 60 uh, area, perhaps even uh, below that. But if I'm right on $1,800 gold and the ratio falls to 60, that would put the silver price at 30 U.S. dollars. Um, the other thing that I think we can expect in, um, um, in 2009 our, uh, the dollar itself is probably um, going to remain volatile and tend to tend to move lower. Uh, there are currencies that are likely to be weaker. I think the problems with sterling are even worse than the dollar, so I don't see sterling rallying against the dollar anytime soon. But um, the uh, the dollar itself is probably going to uh, trend downward against the euro. But the big move is that. The metals are going to go up in terms of all of the major currencies of the world, uh, which is what the metals have been basically doing this entire decade. It's a bull market in the precious metals. It's a bear market in fiat national currencies. 
What if I said to you that um, I don't see the dollar, uh, I see the dollar benefiting from its current status as the senior global currency and it's the currency that everyone's flying to as they liquidize assets elsewhere and the dollar's, dollar's benefited from that in the second half of 2008. What if I said to you that trend is going to continue? Well, I, you know, I think that trend is actually over. Uh, if you look at the long-term picture, the, do- the dollar's been in a, in a long-term downtrend for, for four decades uh, since the 1960s. That was the peak in the dollar, and it's been downhill ever since. We've had uh, bear market rallies from time to time. We had a four-month bear market rally that went from July to November uh, um, of this, this past year. Um, and we're now back you know, near the dollar's lows, 80 on the dollar index. Um, and it suggests to me that this bear market rally is finished, and probably rightly so. It was only caused by deleveraging, people repaying dollar loans. They needed dollars, so the dollar benefited from you know, people buying dollars as they sold assets to repay loans. But that's, I think, you know, largely finished, the, the, the deleveraging. And the more important point is the fundamental problems that have caused the dollar to decline over the past four decades are still in place. In fact, they're probably getting worse because the Federal Reserve is creating new dollars to try to bail out the insolvent banking system, uh, and that ultimately debases the dollar even even further. So I, I don't see any reasons to be optimistic about the dollar. And in fact, um, you know, my long-term view is that the dollar is going to collapse, just like every other fiat currency before it. As hard as that may seem to, to, to accept, uh, we have to look at reality that the dollar is uh, is now just existing because of legacy reasons, not because it's a good currency. Did your business from Iceland uh, increase during the, the panic over there? Well, I don't, I don't really know. I, I haven't really followed, you know, where the new customers are, are coming to gold money from. Uh, I do know that we've had a huge inflow of, of customers from the UK, though, um, because of the problems with sterling and the fact that both, um, you know, gold and uh, silver, but particularly gold, are doing exceptionally well in sterling terms. What if I said to you, James, that um, silver rises with the boom and falls with the bust and that the silver to gold ratio is going to go to 100? Well, you know, there's a lot more volatility in silver than you get in gold. Um, and the reason why this occurs is that, to put it in economic terms, the demand for gold is inelastic. People want it regardless what happens to the uh, to its price. Silver, on the other hand, the demand is is elastic, which means it's very sensitive to changes in price, and you get this volatility. But this elastic demand also means that as people exit fiat currency and move into the safety of tangible assets, it, uh, this movement of money out of fiat currency has a bigger impact on um, on the margin on silver than it does on gold, which causes the ratio to fall. So my expectations would be that uh, silver, over the long term, will continue to outperform gold and that the gold-silver ratio, which is currently around 80, uh, will probably uh, uh, decline. Uh, and like I say, my target for the this coming year is at least 60 on the gold-silver ratio, and I wouldn't be surprised to see it below that. I, I reread your book 
recently, James. And one of the, uh, it was obviously printed in 2004. And one of the excellent predictions was that you should buy long term puts on uh, various financial uh, and banking companies such as uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and the various investment banks and so on. Um, I know that you were less bearish than some on housing because you felt that uh, in a hyperinflationary scenario, uh, everything rises in value. Um, what what is your outlook for in terms of inflation? Are, are houses going to continue to fall? Are banking stocks going to continue to fall? Yeah, I think the the easy part of most of the banking stocks, so the short side of it, most of that is is behind us. I still think the banks are a short, um, but you know, a couple of weeks ago when Citi was down around um, uh, four dollars, I essentially recommended covering the shorts in Citi and and playing a bounce. And I think we have the bounce now. I would leave it to the professional traders uh, to short the financial institutions. Uh, I still think there's more left, but it's not a, an easy play anymore. The easy play now is just buying the metals um, and the gold mining stocks if you're so inclined to take those risks. Uh, to buy stocks as well. But buying the metals here, I think, is is the easier play. But the trend that's in place is still in uh, the same one, that you know, there's money moving out of financial assets. It's moving into tangible assets. <clears throat> and I think this trend is going to continue. I think the other important point is that the, the financial institutions in the United States and, indeed, most parts of the world are still over-leveraged. They're still undercapitalized, and they're going to be more banking and monetary problems in, in 2009. You know, when, when 2008 started, I said it's going to be a lot like uh, 1974, uh, which was the last global credit crisis. And that was a year, 1974 was a year when things just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And that clearly was the case in 2009. You know, two, at the end of 1974, things finally turned and, and the economy and the banking situation eventually got better. But I think 2009 is going to be a lot like 2008, that things are going to just keep getting worse and worse and worse. You know, the economy is now starting to, to get bad, and the worst problems for banks typically are when the economy turns down. And uh, so I think there are going to be some serious losses that the banks are going to be taking in the year ahead. Yeah, I mean, there's still a lot of loan defaults to come, particularly as the major economies go into recession. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, the themes that uh, John Rubino and I, did in our book, uh, The Collapse of the Dollar, I think those themes are still valid. And I think, you know, the long-term view that the dollar is on this, what I call the path to the fiat currency graveyard, uh, remains very much in place. And therefore, you know, avoid dollar-denominated assets is, I think, a good a good strategy. You in, in your book, you also outlined um, uh, towards the end of the book various ways that this would pan out. Um, and one of them was that we returned to some kind of asset backed or gold backed currency. And that was the kind of happy ending. Um, and then the rather more grisly grim ending was that uh, we go to an era of, uh, you know, government control of, of extreme socialism Um we seem to be erring towards the latter in gradual steps. Do you have any comment on that? Yeah, I, I, we, we clearly are, are you know, moving toward the latter. We're morphing into a in, – the United States is morphing into a Soviet Union economy. And, uh, you know, they're probably going to end up buying the automobile manufacturers as well. I guess it's a question of how long before they turn – uh, Chevy's into Jabant's. You remember the old East German car that the government used to produce? 
um, it's really quite scary. And, I mean, there is this relationship between uh, an unsound currency and government control. Yeah, absolutely. You know, in a country where there's a rule of law, you have a sound currency. Uh, there's a certainty to commercial transactions. Today, there's no longer any certainty to commercial transactions in the U.S., and it seems like anybody who wants to can go to the government trough and make an excuse uh, for, you know, uh, taking money from taxpayers. It's really a sad state of affairs, and, you know, hopefully the country will wake up and get back on the right path, but... Um, you know, I don't see anything um, uh, moving in Washington that would suggest that uh, uh, the right decisions are going to be made. I think we're making more and more wrong decisions. We're rewarding the bad decisions that many people have made, and that, that's a bad way to go. And where is all this bailout money in the UK and the US coming from? I mean, are they literally printing it or just creating the digits in a, in a computer somewhere? They're creating the digits in a computer, and that's why, you know, I say that we're going to go through a Weimar situation, a Weimar Germany situation, but it's going to be different because the nature of money in Germany was different than the nature of money in, in the Western economies today. In Germany, there were very few people that had bank accounts. Um, most people in Weimar Germany completed transactions with paper currency. In the United States, most people have bank accounts. There's very few relative transactions that are completed with currency. So the inflation in the United States is going to manifest itself by bookkeeping entries in bank accounts rather than printing of currency. And given the way that the Federal Reserve has expanded its balance sheet, uh, those inflationary pressures are going to grow tremendously in, in 2009. Uh, remember, currency or you know, any demand, any currency is a function of supply, which is what the central bank basically produces and the banking system produces, and demand. And if the demand for a currency falls, you can see a currency collapse. And I think you're going to see falling demand for U.S. dollar currency as the realization comes increasingly clear that the U.S. government is never able to support all of the debt that it's created. A full-scale currency collapse, I mean, that really is run for the hills with canned goods time. Um, have you prepared your stash of canned goods? <laughs> well, I don't know if it's going to come to that. Uh, you know, even during the Great Depression, um, you know, the you know people still interacted with one another uh, in the economy in order to produce goods and services. Because after all, we have to leave, or we have to live day to day, and the way you do that is fulfilling other people's needs and wants. Uh, so I think the economy will you know continue to move forward, but if the government continues to interfere, it's going to make economic conditions that much worse. All right. Well, James Turk, uh, thank you very much. The website is goldmoney.com and the book was once called The Coming Collapse in the Dollar. It's now called The Collapse of the Dollar. Um, James Turk, what, one last question. Have you any p plans? Are you working on another book? Uh, John and I have been talking about it, but nothing specific uh, in the works at the moment. Do you share his bullishness about green stock investing? You know, I just purchased this book uh, recently, Clean Money which is a, a look at in, um, environmental um, uh, investments and, you know, green investing. And uh, it's very, very interesting. I think I'm becoming a convert. <laughs> Good stuff. James Turk, Happy New Year. Thank you very much. Thanks, Dominic. Same to you. Bye-bye. You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisby.
Well, I'm talking now to David Morgan. David writes the Morgan Report, which must be the leading um, investors newsletter on silver. And you can find that uh, newsletter at silver-investor.com. Hello, David. What's going to happen in 2009? Well, I think 2009 is going to be a mixed year. And I believe that we're going to see a pretty strong first quarter, which is pretty traditional for the uh, precious metals. And uh, also you get kind of a big lift in January from stocks that get oversold at the tax loss selling in December. So it's not too hard a forecast to make. But I think we're going to get a nice strong rally. I think that gold's probably going to lead. And this could go into March or April. After that, it's mixed. I really don't expect to see much more than that for a while. I think we may come back down and consolidate at lower levels for a while. Not as low as we are right now, have you? But uh, maybe in the uh, above 900 range, 900 to 1,000 on gold, uh, maybe below 900, somewhere in that range. And silver maybe in the uh, $15 range or so. So I'm not looking for a big, huge rally that just keeps on going in 2009. I think we're going to get a, a strong rally, very tradable, and then we're going to consolidate again. And then I think in 2010 is going to be the big year for the metals. I think that uh, area is probably how long it's going to take for this recessionary fears to subside enough for the market to generally gain its feet. I really think the general stock market is going to do poorly in 2009, and I think that will have an effect on all investments, including the precious metals. And uh, are you bullish on the silver juniors and, and the late-stage development plays? Well, you know how I structure the Morgan Report because you're a reader. And, you know, I have big money and big companies because, you know, when you get to the mining sector, I mean, there's no difference between the end product. I mean, if you're gold corp, you're mining gold. And if you're new mining, you're mining gold. And so the end product is the same. So what you really have to ask yourself is which of those companies is the most profitable. And then, of course, there's unknowns. You know, who's going to replace the reserves the easiest, maybe management skills a little higher, and that kind of thing. But basically, the product is the same. So those type of companies really aren't that difficult to analyze, and we do that on a month-to-month basis. So that's where we put the bulk of our recommendations as far as the amount of money is concerned. But everybody loves to speculate, and we're among them. And what we have in our portfolio right now for speculations are mostly – Small producers with upside potential, and I like the risk-reward profile here right now because cash is very hard to come by. So if you're a producer and you're producing at a profit or you're marginally underwater and you have exploration potentials, you've got a pretty good chance of making some pretty solid gains without a lot of downside risk. At the bottom of the level where you're just a pure junior explorer looking for a precious metal or a base metal or something and you're running low on cash, I would avoid those right now. I think there's way too much risk in those type of stocks right now. Gold-silver ratio, where's it going in 2009? Oh, good question. Well, we've been over 80, which surprised me, and that's basically where the bull market started in 2003. Gold's bottom started in 2000, silver started in 2003, and outperformed gold up until rather recently, as you know. The ratio is probably going to come back down at, say, 60-ish. I don't think it's going to go into the you know 50, 40 level that I believe that it will at some point. But I don't think 2009 is that point. I want to caution that statement, though. Silver is such a thin and small market. Anything can happen in the silver market. And from somebody that's looked at it on a daily basis for over 30 years, believe me, I know that as much as anyone. 
So if we get in a very tight supply situation or there's some new use for silver or there's some medical application that catches fire or something along those lines, I mean, silver could take off on its own regardless of the economic conditions, regardless of, you know, the fundamentals put out by the mainstream press and just take off and everybody kind of stands there looking with their jaw dropped. So you always have to be prepared with the silver market that no matter who you're talking to, myself, Ted Butler, any of the well-knowns in the silver forecasting business, you might call it, you got to caution yourself because this is a very extremely small market that's extremely volatile, and again, anything can happen. So it's not what I'm looking for, but that's why you subscribe to a newsletter like mine because I do stay on top of other stuff. And I will be writing out probably a few forecasts for gold and silver, not only price-wise, but pretty much what to expect for 2009 in this upcoming January forecast issue. I don't know if you know this, but the the, the pound, our, our British pound, has has fallen dramatically against everything else uh, over the last six months or so, and, and it's really sped up in the last three months. And gold has broken out to all-time highs, um, convincing all-time highs against sterling. Would you be buying physical gold now if you didn't own any, or would you wait? Oh, no, absolutely. No, this is a decision that just is you know common sense. You have to put your emotion aside and forget all of the, you know, buy low, sell high. I mean, certainly there's a point where you probably don't want to buy gold, but now isn't the time. You need to have gold for wealth protection and preservation above all, and that's why you would buy it regardless of the price right now. And, you know, actually, if you study the stock market as hard as I have, buying at a high is actually not as, as dumb as it sounds especially in a commodity, because if you buy at a high, then everyone that's holding it with you is waiting and holding it. They won't sell it because they don't know how high it's going to go. So basically, it puts a lot of upward pressure when you hit a new high. Good stuff. Well, Dave Morgan, it's been a real pleasure. Why don't you give out the website as, as we close? Certainly, it's uh, silver-investor.com. Or if you can't remember that, just go to mysilverinvestor.com. If you can't remember that, just Google David Morgan in Google, and my website will pop up for you. Good stuff. Well, here's to silver in 2009. Thank you so much, Dominic. Commodity Watch Radio at Mindsight.com. John Rubino is up next. John is the author of uh, The Coming Collapse in the Dollar, along with James Turk. That's now been updated to The Collapse of the Dollar. And he has a new book which is coming out just at virtually as we speak. It came out a couple of weeks ago. Hello, John. Welcome to the show. Uh, why don't you give us a quick, tell us a, a little bit about your new book. Hi, Dominic. Yeah, the, the new book is called Clean Money, Picking Winners in the Green Tech Boom. And it's about... Um, um, clean tech investing, in other words, solar and wind and smart grid and, and all the things that um, the, the governments of the world are going to be pumping huge amounts of money into in the next few years and, and uh, the stocks which should go up as a result of that. So presumably 2009 will see the beginning of the green tech boom. Uh, yeah, I think its time has come for a, a few reasons. First of all, a lot of this stuff 
finally works. You know, it's it's uh, been around solar and wind and, and things like that have been around for a long time, but uh, they weren't really economic. They were they required massive subsidies in the past to be worth installing. You know, from a financial standpoint. But uh, each year they get a little more efficient. And now we're reaching the point where a lot of these things actually stand on their own um, economically. And uh, because of that, we're going to see a huge transition in the, the world's energy infrastructure uh, in the next couple of decades in, in which we um, start scaling back uh, various kinds of fossil fuel generating uh, capacities and, and start adding um, alternative energy. And so the... Uh, uh, the amount of money flowing into what are now very small sectors will be huge in relation to the you know the stocks that are out there. So we should see a a, a bull market in these things um, that will over time rival what happened with tech stocks and housing and and uh, and um, things like that in the last few years. What uh, what effect will the lack of available credit have on these stocks? It'll slow things down in the short run, but. Um, at the same time, um, the, the governments of the world know that they have to increase spending dramatically in order to keep us from falling into a depression. And uh, a lot of what they spend on in the next few years will be clean tech, just because that's uh, that's seen as a, a necessary transition in any event. So this is, in a way, especially for the U.S. government, the incoming uh, Obama administration, I think sees this as an opportunity. This is something they would have loved to have done but couldn't have done in normal times because we couldn't run gigantic budget deficits in normal times but now everyone expects a massive government spending program because we're we're so afraid of falling into a depression so these guys have a chance now to basically remake the energy infrastructure in the US and uh, they're armed with an unlimited printing press basically so that's that's probably what they're going to try to do in the next few years. So they're going to pump a lot of money into um, um, making buildings more energy efficient and, and building new alternative energy generation sources. And uh, uh, there are still um, the, the, the stocks in this sector are still relatively um, small cap in a lot of cases. So even a small amount of money flowing into them will have a big impact. And uh, the amounts of money that we're probably talking about are, are not small. So it, it'll be an interesting process. Is there less incentive to come up with effective and efficient clean tech now that the oil price has fallen so dramatically? Well, uh, there's a, a less financial incentive right now on the part of, say, a driver who uh, used to be paying $4 U.S. for uh, a gallon of gas and is now paying a buck fifty um, to, to buy a small car as opposed to a big SUV. But <clears throat> from a, a public policy standpoint, I think it's now recognized that uh, we, we, every time we have an energy crisis here, we, we uh, begin to get efficient for a year or two, and then when oil prices go back down, we, uh, we lose interest. And that has, that's been a mistake in retrospect. We should have prepared for the next energy crisis after the previous energy crisis. And so I, I think we've learned our lesson, and I think that uh, – Public policy is going to reflect that in one way or another. Either we'll get a carbon tax or we'll get a, a cap-and-trade program or we'll get massive subsidies for clean technologies like plug-in hybrids. And that's going to skew the market towards alternative energy, regardless of what oil prices do in the short run. So I, I, I think that uh, while a, a credit crisis and lower energy prices um, in and of themselves are a problem for clean tech. 
public policy is going to put a wind at its back regardless. And what else do you, do you see doing well uh, in 2009? Well, 2009, it, it, this is going to be a fascinating year because this is the year we finally get to um, answer the question, what happens when a deflationary crash meets an unlimited printing press? This, this has been something that economists have been de- debating since the Great Depression because there's... Um, uh, there, there's an assumption out there on the part of a lot of people that uh, the depression wouldn't have happened if the U.S. government and, and the other governments of the world w- was able to um, just print as much money as was necessary to keep us to, from falling into the depression. And uh, we couldn't back then because we were on the gold standard, which limited the amount of money that could be created out of thin air. Well, we're, we're not on the gold standard anymore. Um, the, the currencies of the world are just fiat currencies, which means they're, they're just made up by the government. You know, they, they uh, run them off in a printing press or they, they create them with a, a mouse click and uh, they, they can create as much as they want. So in 2009, um, the governments of the world are, are going to go on a money creation binge and they're going to flood the system with cash and we're going to find out whether um, it's possible to stop a deflationary crash by simply printing money. That's going to be a very interesting process, and I, I tend to think that, uh, um, for in the short run, the answer is going to be yes. That we're going to do whatever it takes. We're going to print as much new currency as we have to in order to keep the banking system solvent and to start uh, people lending and borrowing again. So for a year or two things may look like um, they're returning to normal and that we're more or less out of the woods. But I think the cost will be um, such a huge increase in the amount of currency out there that we swap basically a a deflationary crash for a currency crisis down the road. In other words, the, the value of the dollar and the pound and the euro start to go down, not necessarily versus each other, but versus the real things of the world. Prices start to go back up. And, and and then we see interest rates go back up because no one wants to hold uh, dollar or pound or euro denominated bonds, which which pay a, a steady stream of of those currencies when those currencies are going down in value, and um, that will cause bond prices to get crushed, which is the same thing as saying long term interest rates go up, which will cause the the financial sector to fall back into um, a depression along the way it'll cause precious metals prices to go through the roof because they're the um, gold and silver are historically used as money and they're the only forms of money that can't be created in infinite quantities by governments. So we'll, we'll shift um, en masse from paper to harder forms of money and that's very good for gold and silver prices. So I think the, the next couple of years will be spectacularly good for uh, for precious metals uh, bullion and especially for the, the the higher quality mining stocks out there, we'll see a lot of them go up five or ten times from their current prices. And I mean, what kind of time scale? You said a year or two. I mean, when is the when is when is the going? When are we going to see the clash of the titans climaxing? Well, we're, we're seeing the beginning of it now, and. Um, Beyond that, anytime I try to make any kind of a time prediction, it's always wrong. So whatever I tell you, you can just bet on the opposite probably and, and, uh, and make a lot of money. But um, I, I think it probably plays out in, a, in a, a reasonably short time frame just because so much is happening right now. I mean, we're, you know, the U.S. government's going to run a trillion-dollar deficit next year. 
we're, we're in, in January, we're, we're going to announce um, a trillion-dollar-plus stimulus plan. And interest rates are already pretty close to zero, and we're beginning to um, look at the long end of the, the yield curve where we start buying treasury bonds and corporate bonds in order to force long-term rates down and just pump out whatever money it takes. You know, this, this is huge stuff. This is really historically unprecedented stuff that's going on right now. And it's hard to believe that, um, that it doesn't have very serious near-term effects. So um, I, I, I think 2009 is going to be one for the history books, and it's not completely predictable in the short run how it plays out, but I think the, the long-term effects of printing all this money are, are, based on history, reasonably easy to predict, and that is a currency crisis. And in this case, a global currency crisis. You know, in, in the past, lots of countries have destroyed their currencies by spending too much and printing too much and borrowing too much. That's a, it's a very normal thing in terms of financial history, but we've never had it happen on a global basis before. So um, we're, we're to that extent in uncharted territory, but um, only to the extent that it's global. I mean, the, the process is pretty well understood by now, and it always ends badly. I am... Um recently reread your book and uh, in fact i asked james turk this question earlier in the show uh, in towards the end of your book you outline two scenarios uh, a kind of happy ending where we go back to some kind of gold standard uh, uh, that, that uh, a currency that can't be uh, um, devalued by governments and then you outlined it a much more negative uh, sad ending where we go back to more and more government control and uh, we end up in some kind of nasty so socialist state. Um, and, and when I say socialist state, I don't mean to upset any uh, people of a left-wing bent listening to the program, but I mean a, a, a nasty, you know, full-on government-controlled socialist state. Um, which of those two scenarios do you see as the, the most probable at the moment, John? At the moment, we seem to be heading for the latter unhappy ending. Yeah. Um, and, and we say that in the book that the uh, uh, dictatorship of, of some sort is is more likely, just because um, it, it takes a crisis to get a democracy to act um, decisively, and so we're going to have to have some kind of very serious, more serious than what we've had, by the way, economic crisis um, to to form some kind of a consensus. Right now, we're we're debating it. You know, around the world, we're debating um, how we got here and where we go from here. And uh, unfortunately, the, the consensus that's forming is that this is a problem of capitalism, that we had too much freedom and uh, not enough government control, and that's why things spun out of control. Now, I, I disagree with that. I think that uh, um, most of what has happened is, is directly attributable to governments growing more quickly than they should have and then printing too much extra money and causing the private sector to borrow too much. And, and um, so the, the um, solution is to go back to um, you know, the, the U.S. founders' ideas of limited government and sound money. That, that's not the consensus that's forming out there. Right now, um, it looks like we're, we're heading for more government control and um, a, a bigger say in the, uh, in the workings of the private sector on the part of government and less individual freedom. And um, if things stay, uh, if, if we continue with the crisis atmosphere that we have now for a while, then the government is just going to grow and become more powerful until we get, uh, you know, without even realizing it, a dictatorship. 
And that's a terrifying thought, especially I'm, I'm raising you know two young sons, and I hate the idea of the world they're going to grow up in if this if it plays out this way. But I'm afraid that's the most likely scenario. But it's not the only scenario. We we could still educate ourselves about what money is and about what the role of government is um, versus the private sector, and and uh, and go back to first principles. That could happen. And uh, you know, all, all you and I can do is just lend our voices to the. Uh, to the side that uh, is, is lobbying for that kind of a, a transition. All right. Well, uh, here's hoping, John, and uh, all the best with your book in 2009. We'll get you on the show to talk uh, um, in greater detail about it, perhaps in a month or so. Um, but in the meantime, have a very happy new year. And uh, why don't you give out your uh, website address as we close? Okay. Um, two websites, basically. The first is www.dollarcollapse.com. And the other is www.greenstockinvesting.com. Both are basically designed to be current news sites for the two sectors. One is a financial crisis that's ongoing. The other is clean tech investing. So the idea is that you show up there in the morning and spend a half hour or so, and you're kind of brought up to speed on what's going on in those two sectors. John Rubino, thank you very much. Great. Thanks, Dominic. You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisby. Well, my next guest is an old favorite of Commodity Watch Radio. He's the man who's called these markets over the past year or so as well as anyone, if not better than anyone. He's Bob Hoy. He writes Pivotal Events, a weekly uh, overview of the markets. He is the Chief Investment Strategist for Institutional Advisors. Hello, Bob. What's in store in 2009? Well, uh, our most confident prediction is that the days are going to get longer. (laughs) (laughs) That's the safest one. And the uh, policymakers will continue to founder around. Uh, they really don't know what they're doing, but um, they may end up looking pretty good by about March or April because, as you know, we were expecting a, uh, a classic fall financial crash in the end of the uh, end of November, and then stabilization in the markets, and then, oh, perhaps by mid. January, the leading indexes, stock indexes, sort of getting to enough of a comfortable recovery that uh, the the street can gain more confidence. And then by March, April, they could be saying, hey, the worst is over, everything's fine, stock markets have retraced 40% of the loss, da-da-da-da, that sort of stuff. And within this, Dominic, we're looking now, of course, for constructive patterns. There's Oh, I think the advanced declines have proved a little in the in the New York stock market. But what you want to look at here is that there's been quite a bit of easing in the money markets. Uh, credit spreads have narrowed. Uh, short-term rates have come down. Um, there's a little seasonality to the short rates declining, of course, as you go into year-end. But uh, there's been uh, a, a whole lot of shall we call it, lolly, pushed into the markets by central banks around the world under, I would add, desperate panic. I mean, they can't believe what hit them. 
And as you and I both know, what hit them was uh, it replicated the 1929 crash on percentage changes on the way down, the rallies, the timing of the rallies, and then the final low in November. And, of course, the 1929 crash replicated the crash of 1873 as to timing as well. So the other constructive action has been the recovery in grain prices, which, of course, had been trashed in the panic. And uh, we just keep a simple little index on corn, wheat, and soybeans. And it's back up to uh, the levels uh, in late September. So there's been recovery here. Then uh, you also have had the reasonable recovery in base metal prices, but uh, nothing too much yet in the oil or natural gas markets. But then we've been looking for a seasonal low in late December for both items, which is around now. So, And then on the technical side, we also had, oh, uh, our proprietary model registered a downside capitulation on the CRB and on crude oil itself. So you have important lows being established at close to when you would expect them, and that would be confirmed with technical analysis. So we're actually looking for a, a pretty good trade out of these on the long side right through until, as I say, March or April. And then on the interest rate side, the uh, of course the easing in the short end has still created a terrific speculation in the long bond, and it is now up in no man's land, and it is also generating upside exhaustion figures, but we haven't quite got the final number that we need to initiate the big sell on the bond market. But it it would be logical that if we get a good rally out of the commodities, you would have quite a sell-off in bonds. Also, with this, we've been looking for the dollar index, U.S. dollar index, to generally decline from when we got the sell signal in October on that thing. And that could be, oh, it ha- it's had a big sell-off, so, but the decline would be expected to run into, again, March, April. But I don't know how much lower it need go. It's had a terrific sell-off. Maybe it just... Maybe it just turns around uh, for for a couple of months in here, and then uh, what else we got to look at? Uh, Do you think all this money printing that's going on uh, will uh, affect the dollar? Oh no, I think the dollar is just going to has just been weakening because the devastated commodity side has been recovering. Uh, there is tremendous conviction amongst the gold bug community that. The huge uh, amount of stimulus that the U.S. doing is doing will lead to a tremendous decline in the dollar and move gold up to some tremendous price. But one of the things that uh, even the orthodox side of the street seems to be overlooking now is the the old concept of uh, money velocity. And uh, in a boom, the velocity increases, and then in a bust, the velocity decreases. So. The amount of lolly they're pushing out may be offset by, you know, the credit contraction as debt is being written off elsewhere. So we are not in the bandwagon that this is going to trash the dollar further and drive gold to some horrendous price. But underneath it, it's kind of nice to end on gold. 
is that uh, typically uh, in a boom, the real price of gold goes down, and that means your ratio between your cost and uh, what you're getting for bullion if you're a miner is going against you. And then once the big boom is over, then the real price starts to increase. And then for some convenience, we created our own uh, commodity index. So uh, we divide gold by that. And it had a big low in May of 07 at 143. And that, of course, it was May-June when we had the turn to disaster in the credit markets. And that index now is up to over 400, terrific increase. And this is reflecting that, for example, with crude oil dropping hugely relative to gold, that reflects the cost of mining, cost of power, cost of blasting agents, all that sort of stuff. And indeed, two weeks ago, the Wall Street Journal did come out with an article pointing out that Guess what? Profit margins for the industry are improving. So we expect the trend of gold outperforming most commodities for most of the time to continue. Uh, This will have a tremendous effect on improving earnings. Also, it improves the valuation of of, uh, ore, ore bodies and ore reserves. And one of the things that was, of course, the great conditioner on the gold stocks was the expected fall crash, whereby gold stocks would would crash with the stock market, which they did. But now it's time for the whole sector to improve, and uh, we think gold stocks will have a very good turn out to April, May. But one you one thing I'm keep in mind is that they still gold shares will still go up and down with the stock market, but net a couple of years from now, stock prices could be very much lower, and the gold stocks very much higher. And it would pull the whole sector up, including exploration stocks. So we're very bullish on the outlook for the gold sector over the next couple of years. Um, something that impressed me about the gold shares, and I wrote about this in my uh, in, in Money Week in November, was that they made a low in October with the overall markets. Then there was a bounce, and then the overall markets and the commodities markets and the stock markets made a lower low in November, but the gold stocks actually made a higher low. Yeah. No, that technically uh, it, it, the group is looking good. And it, it'll be a lot of fun to play some of these junior mining stocks. As we all know, they're an excellent call on the future price of gold and uh, where you have them with good management and that the, the, the companies still have a pulse, they're still filing uh, their listing requirements and all that sort of stuff, I think there's going to be a lot of fun in the, in the sector again because it's been a huge drought since May of '06, or the major decline in the whole exploration side. Do you, is your roadmap kind of gold stocks up until the spring and then the correction with the overall market and then a, then a better performance maybe beginning in the autumn? Oh, yes. I think there'd be a good trade in gold stocks from here out to March, April. One would want to take a little money off the table or, you know, buy some um, various option strategies. One of the things we like to do when we see the gold sector correcting is to short the big silver stocks. They're like fairly liquid and you can um, make some money on the short side in silver because the uh, in in up until recently, we've expected the gold-silver ratio to go against silver and for gold, which it did do, and it does do in a crash. 
And then for the first quarter this year, we'd expect silver to outperform gold. And so tell us while, where you see the gold-silver ratio going over the course of this year. Yeah, we're going down. Let's see. We It sort of broke out at 55, if I recall rightly. Then in the long term, in a post-bubble contraction, the gold-silver ratio could get out to around 100. It seems like a big number, but it in the banking disaster of the late 1990, when uh, Chase Manhattan and Citigroup had to be bailed out then, the gold-silver ratio did get bit, a bit beyond 100. So in a, in a severe post-bubble contraction, the gold-silver ratio generally goes up, uh, and it can go quite a bit. So we've had a target of around 100. But on the disaster uh, that has ended, the ratio got out on a closing basis to around 85, and now it's around 79. So it's going the right direction. It could get into, say, around 70, and that would be a good move. And then you'd see it going up to 100. And then eventually out to uh, 100. And uh, so for those in the gold and silver game, you can actually make good money uh, trading silver against gold and then the other way around. And as we said, we would be looking now for silver to perform gold until, until the spring. So, and, But then after that. Then after sorry, that. Then after that, heading out to the, let's call it the big round number, the ton. <laughs> <laughs> Which you would expect 100. to see before the end of 2009? Um, it's possible. Certainly out by by a year from now, maybe around 90. Okay. And yeah. uh, what about the, the stock indices after April, May? Then then the, the bear market resumes and it's... Uh... Yeah, on the, on the senior stock index is the general stock market heading south again. And let's look at some numbers. For example, in 1929, the high in September was, for the Dow, was 380. At about this time in uh, 1929 be about 200 and then the low in uh, 1932 was 42 so <laughs> this doesn't necessarily say that it can do the whole 85% drop but it's going to be a bad one oh dear yeah even in uh, unbacked currency it's going to go that low is it yeah, but one should also look back in the 1929, the 1930s, and there, uh, the Federal Reserve was nominally was dealing with a gold-backed dollar, but it wasn't. Uh, it was set up uh, to provide a flexible currency to be able to inflate credit. Um, are we going to go to an, an ounce of gold to an ounce of uh, to a, a point on the Dow eventually, one-to-one ratio? <laughs> uh Josh, when you take a look at the Dow deflated by the price of gold, it sure tells you where one should be. But, uh, no, I don't have a number for that one. But, uh, you know, it's possible um, that the public would, if, it, if it's angry now with Wall Street, it can eventually figure out that the bailouts are bad, and that then links to the political side of the equation. And eventually they can realize that the whole problem has been uh, nationalized currencies whereby each central bank can rig the currency and deflate it and, and oh, sorry, and depreciate it. So uh, they're, they're, that's the real scam in the whole game, and I think the public can get aware of it and realize that there's only one way to get 
accountability into government is to go back to a gold standard. And I would say that that's fairly probable somewhere over the next five or six years. And uh, Who's got the gold? I guess the American Treasury still has a fair amount of gold. and uh, But then uh, as the real price goes up for gold day to day, uh, the respect for gold will increase, and eventually the intellectual community will find a reason for wanting to own it. Central bankers will realize that it is really is a superb reserve, and uh, this will sort of happen like osmosis. And uh, it'll be interesting to watch the rationalizations change from the acad- at the academic community level. So that's. Uh, but then you know. You really can't go and say that, oh, gosh, you got to have uh, an ounce of gold for so many dollars and it's going to be done at 10000 or 100000 or something like that. What it is is it's a full faith uh, uh, in the government, and at some point uh, all they have to do is say, okay, we're going to redeem gold and issue gold at a price point around uh, whatever it is, it's like when they went back on the gold standard in 1879, I think it was, uh, about a year and a half before then, the um, President Grant just uh, gave a notice to the Treasury saying that at a such and such a date, uh, they will be able to redeem or uh, gold or for dollars or the other way around. So I think that will happen, and, and the market will know what the price is to uh, put on a gold standard at but I'm not the one that's going to say it's going to be at 1000 2000 or 10000 It's it's Leave that up to the market. I like the fact that it's going to be in the thousands, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but underneath it, the nominal price of gold doesn't matter because in 1929, it was fixed at $20.67, and in the boom, prices went up relative to gold, uh, Homestake, for example, was the premier producer in North America, and its earnings went down with the 1929 boom. And then by 1932, the end of 1932, the price of gold was still $20.67. Homestake stock was up something like 140%, and uh, the stock market was down uh, 80%. But their earnings were also up around 130%. And there was uh, no change in the price of gold, but it was like now, base metal mines were being shut down everywhere, so miners uh, were available, labor prices weren't going up, and energy prices were going down relative to gold. So this is what I constantly try and get across, is that the nominal price uh, matters if you're trading gold against dollars, but if you're mining, all you want to do is have the real price going up and your cost falling relative to the price of bullion and this is the environment we are in now so for for 09 we're looking for uh good markets in the first quarter and at the end of the year we'd expect uh, gold and the gold shares to be up quite a bit good stuff well bob thank yeah. you very much if you want to give out your website do you want to give out your website yeah institutionaladvisors.com or if you just you know, Google my name, Bob Hoy, B-O-B-H-O-Y-E, and it gets you right into the the website and all the stuff we've published very quickly. And as I said, we're kind of working on a book here that uh, 
perhaps sometime in the first quarter we'll have it out. Good stuff. Bob, Very good then, Dominic. Happy New Year. Commodity Watch Radio is presented and produced by Dominic Frisbee for Mindsight with music by Manolo Camp. To discuss the markets and have your say, why not visit our bulletin board at globaledgeinvestors.com. That's globaledgeinvestors.com.